Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey there, and welcome to season two, episode four of the All About Everest podcast. I'm really excited to share with you guys today my interview with the Irish mountaineer, Jason Black. What a wonderful human being. I love his story. I enjoyed visiting with him. And I wish that I recorded the pre-interviews. I take a couple minutes before we get to the actual podcast interview. And I wish I recorded those because there are some amazing moments that I get from those pre-interviews. I'm super excited about this season of the podcast because I have so many interviews scheduled and some that I've already completed that I'm going to continue to share with you. I can't tell you who's going to be on next week's episode. I can tell you it's going to be a female mountaineer and she's a current record breaker. That's all I can tell you. So look forward to that next week because I sure am. The previous episode, episode three, was the interview with Alex Harz. He is a mountaineer and creator of the Quest Experience, including the Quest Nepal documentary. And then in the next couple of months, he's coming out with the Quest Everest documentary as well as the Everest VR Experience. If you didn't catch that interview, it's episode three of this season. Two quick things before I get to the rest of the podcast episode. The first one is you can find us now on Patreon. Lots of bonus content, book club, so much more. One tier, short and simple. Go ahead and check it out. And the link will be in the description of this episode as well as the show notes. The second thing is, if you haven't heard about the monthly nomadic subscription box, it is the best subscription box for outdoorsy people. Anyone who likes to camp, hike, backpack, kayak, through hike, anything like that, it starts as low as $29.99. Each month it includes between four to six items and February sneak peek. There is a Camelback Podium Chill Bottle, the Model Infinity Tool, the Filled Shear Mobile Cooling Hydraulic Neckband. That is a game changer, especially when you're backpacking in the hot and gross weather in Montana. And the Ultima Replenisher Electrolyte Hydration Powder. For our listeners, they offer a 10% discount. Just use the code EVEREST at checkout. And that link as well as the code will be in the description below and the show notes. I had heard about Jason Black before, mainly because of his K2 expedition. But the reason I interviewed him is one of our listeners, Brian. Hey, Brian, huge shout out, buddy. 
asked if I would reach out to Jason and interview him. And Jason was kind enough to say, hey, yeah, I'll do it. I interview people every day at work because of what I do. And my interview with Jason, if you guys have been able to see my face, there were times where I was literally bawling like ugly tears because it was just such an emotional interview and I can't say more than enough about his character and his personality and what a good human he is and I'm so grateful that he's part of the mountaineering community. I hope you guys enjoy this interview as much as I did doing it and I hope that you are inspired as much as I was. So here we go. Hey, Jason. Well, thank you so much for joining the All About Everest podcast. Everybody, I have Jason Black today from Ireland, who is a fantastic mountaineer. And I'm so excited that he's here joining us. Hey, thank you. It's just beautiful to be here. And thanks for the opportunity to share. So Jason, you've been all over the world. You've been on Mount Everest. What got you started in the mountaineering world? Yeah, so I suppose mountaineering has been my life. Uh, I don't know anything else but mountaineering. Um, I grew up um, as a young boy from seven years of age. I was introduced to Cubs and Scouts. Um, I don't know how, I don't know why it all happened, but uh, a neighbor was going to town and my mom put me into the car. I think she was just glad to get me out of the house as a young boy. And uh, I found myself in Cubs and Scouts and um, the magic happened because what I didn't realize was um, I had two incredible leaders uh, that decided that scouting was outdoors and they took me to the rivers, the lakes and the mountains around the Northwest corner of Donegal in Ireland here. And as a young boy, I was just, the sense of adventure was instilled in me immediately and I fell in love with everything about nature. And, uh, you know, I, that, that continued from then to this day. You know, I'm still a Cub Scout. I'm still on adventure. I'm still exploring. And I think that, that mystery and that excitement of exploration hasn't left me. So I don't know anything else, but that, that has been my journey since I've been seven years of age. I, I got introduced to the Ireland mountains, the English mountains, the Scottish mountains. I had done, you know, um, the West Highland Way, which is a nine-day expedition in Scotland when I was 11 years of age, um, sleeping in tents, learning how to cook and uh, camp craft, learning how to read maps, compasses. Um, just recently, somebody asked me, how do I know how to read a map, like a book? And I was like, I don't know. I can't remember the day that somebody taught me, you know, it's a bit like, when did you learn to walk? I can't remember being taught how a compass worked or how a map worked. And, but yet, I, if you give me a map or compass within 10 minutes, I can work out exactly where I am, you know, and it's just, a, it's a very, it's a very natural skill set that's been instilled in me. So it's been a gift. Nature has been a gift and uh, this journey has been incredible. And we had talked earlier about this, but also your bio, you had struggled a lot as a teenager and a young child. Um, how did mountaineering help you with that and kind of go into a couple more details for us? 
Yeah, look, uh, it's a great question. And it's a well that I don't go to too often, but it's a well that's a necessary evil at times because today I share my word outside of mountaineering with young people and, and try to encourage them and try to empower them to live life to the full and to remove the obstacles of life and to silence the dream stealers in life. And I had a lot of dream stealers in my life. I I went to, you know, I was a young boy that that went to, a, I live in the countryside and I, I live in the mountains and and I, I, I went to a small little primary school as a young boy up till I was 13 years of age and it was gorgeous, it was beautiful. I, you know, there was only about 14 or 15 in the class in total, in the school in total, actually not the class. And um, we had a beautiful friendship and, and camaraderie in that school and, and a nice teacher and life was quite simple. And you know, I grew up in, in a house of four. I'm the oldest of four. My mum and dad were extremely hardworking people. My daddy is a motor mechanic and fixed cars at the at the side of the house. And my mommy was a was an even harder working housewife that was trying to put food in on a table and fill a, a fridge. Um, that that was challenging growing up in the seventies and eighties in Ireland. You know, and we didn't have a lot of money as a family, but there was one beautiful thing we had in our home, which was. A love and fellowship and 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 a sense of adventure. Um, that that whole journey was was great for me. I, my youthful, my young school life was was brilliant, and I had outgrown national school or sec uh, young school, and then it was ready for the next journey, which was the the big school. And I never forget getting my. I never had a uniform before, so I never forget getting my first uniform. My mom taking me into town and trying all the slacks and the jacket and it was really cool and get my first school bag, proper school bag. And my, because I was the oldest, my siblings were all sitting around the table and they were all super excited about this new chapter in our home. And I'd never been on a school bus before because we generally got a lift with my dad or cycled the bike or, or were able to walk. So, um, so then uh, I remember like having my breakfast and heading off to school, that, you know, getting the bus for the first time and all my siblings sitting around and they were in awe and couldn't wait to hear about this whole magical journey. And, and like me, I was, I was just full of, <clears throat> I was full of adventure, you know, I was ready for the next chapter. I'd outgrown national school and I was ready for secondary school, the big school. But sadly for me, Pauline, when I went through the gates of that school, um, my life, absolutely fell apart. I became uh, became a victim of a very, very, very challenging bully for six years who absolutely destroyed me as a human being for six years, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, everything around it was the punches in the arms to my school bag go missing, to my books go missing. You know, and then I couldn't say anything to the teacher. I couldn't explain where my bag was. And then when I couldn't explain it, I would get more punishment. And it was just, it was just, layers and layers and layers of abuse and I could see that life at home was very challenging for mom and dad you know I could see that mommy and daddy were really struggling to keep things going you know financially and four kids all hungry for food and hungry for life I suppose but I suppose as being the oldest child I, I chose to keep that to myself I, I decided I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna bring that home so it's probably in reflection my biggest regret that I didn't have the courage to say I'm struggling or I need help. You know, in reflection today, I should have, I should have said, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling big time. And uh, yeah, that was a tough time for me. Um, I walked out of there at 17 years of age and I was a pretty broken, I was a pretty broken human being. 
I had lost a complete education because for me, school just represented the boy. I couldn't see any goodness in school. I couldn't see I couldn't see a future in it. I couldn't see any hope. It was full of darkness and despair for me. And I think looking back today, I was without doubt struggling with a very youthful depression. You know, and again, growing up in Ireland, more than less than the world, I suppose, as a young boy in the 70s and 80s, it was never talked about. Men were never allowed to be depressed. Um, it was, you know, stuff up, stiff upper lip. It was uh, chin up and chest out. And, you know, you'll be fine and get on with it. And, and I wasn't fine. I was I was in bits. I was in turmoil internally. I was broken. And mentally and emotionally, I was just distraught and lost. And uh, I think I camouflaged it very well because I asked my parents later on and they, they knew I was, you know, that difficult teenager, but I didn't, I didn't show. I, I hit it very, very well. I didn't show the turmoil. So walking out the gates, uh, you know, with no education, no qualification. I remember the school master saying, Jason, you'll never amount to anything. You know, I remember being handed my results, which was just a big, big X and failure all over it. He said to me, uh, you know, he was a he was a, a priest in, in school and he said, you'll never amount to anything, Jason. And, and that's that was my that was my parting gift from that school. Can you imagine how that felt? You know. And. Um, my only saving grace, my only saving grace during that whole time was my mountains. Because if I didn't have my mountains, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you now. Because when I would come in from school, I would throw the bag in the corner of my kitchen at home and I would be on my bike or I would be out in the hills or I'd be kayaking the rivers and lakes. And I would be screaming with anger and frustration and annoyance and oh, fuck all those things that 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 were were that those emotions that bullies do, you know, and they're you know, scars from a bully you can't see, you can't see them, you know, they're deep rooted, they're they're deep inside a person, you know. And the only freedom and the only space that I could that could have that could have that could I could get any peace from was nature. Nature just let me breathe and let me vent and let me cry and let me scream and it didn't judge me as a person. So like walking out the gates was a bloody, bloody hard place. And uh, the double whammy then came that my, my mom died from cancer. She was 46 and I was 17. And, you know, mom never told us because I suppose she just didn't want to instill fear in us. And, uh, you know, I wasn't emotionally well at the time. You know, I certainly at 17, I wasn't like a 17-year-old today. I was a 17 redneck, you know, I was a 17 uh, green behind the ears guy. You know, I just didn't, I, I didn't function the way a 17-year-old functions in a modern world today. I didn't have the same mental strength. I didn't have the same mental comprehension. And, uh, you know, when a mom, when a mom dies in a young home, in Ireland, anyway, I can speak about our my home. They're the glue. Um, a mom is a glue in a in a family. She's the person. She's the fixer upper. She's the the person can make food from an empty fridge. She's the healer. She's the you know she's the you know she's the discipline disciplinarian. She's she's everything. And um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a tough tough time. I can tell you. And again. Um, 
I never seen this one coming, but the next bully was waiting for me right outside the school gates. And and, and that bully became society. And uh, I, I never imagined this would happen to me. Um, society has this, society has this way of, of, of making an individual fit into a box. And if you don't fit into that box, which is made up of a degree and a, a look and a color and a shape and a size and a, a nature and you have to talk a certain way and you have to you have to act a certain way and if you don't if you don't fit into that box then then you're odd and I was odd obviously I was the square peg in the round hole and and uh yeah bully the bully was replaced by society very quickly and what I couldn't comprehend was that every time I couldn't get a job Every time I tried to get a job, I would present this reckless piece of paper that had nothing on it but, uh, you know, Ds, Es, and Fs, and the results that people could not, you know, the employers or the potential employers could only see the piece of paper. They couldn't see me, the person, and I couldn't understand why you can't see me. And I, you know, I I hadn't the courage to say it, but you know, I should have said it. Yeah, look up. You know, don't look down, don't look at that piece of paper and measure me on that piece of paper. You know, look up and look at me in the white of the eye and, and measure me on who I am, you know. And um, I spent a long, long time on my knees in life because society wouldn't let me up. Society wouldn't let me grow and wouldn't let me fit in because I didn't fit in, because I didn't have the credentials, I didn't look, behave and dress a certain way. I was, you know, I was the adventure guy. I was odd. You know, I was the guy that was, you know, reading maps and climbing mountains and constantly on adventure. And I wasn't running around in the flash car, the BMW or wearing the nice fancy suits or hadn't the degree or the qualification and hadn't a bank balance over swimming with money. So that was tough. And uh, that continued for a long number of years. So when I talk about nature and my my why why my mountains mean everything to me is because there was a day and an hour there was a day and an hour and I can remember it so fondly sadly that I felt the world was a better place without me here and that I would be better gone and I, I had it planned uh, with a rope to hang myself and and take myself from this world. And the only thing that stopped me from leaving was nature. And Mother Nature replaced my mother. Uh, my mom was gone and I needed, uh, I needed the care and attention and love of a mother. And that came in the form of my mountains. And, uh, and I'm so thankful uh, that she was there for me. And I am a very visual person and I have this visualization of mother nature and her embracement of me in my life and keeping me safe and uh, so when I speak about you know how my mountains or the mountains of the world are my playground or my university or my life and how important and special they are to me they aren't words they are feelings and emotions What a powerful story. Thank you for being so honest and sharing that with us.
Yeah, you're welcome. I don't really do it too often, but you got to know the whole story. You got to hear all the story to know the whole story. So I think, you know, sometimes as mountaineers, we're put on pedestals for what we do, which is wrong, just because we choose to climb 8,000 mountains and have the battles of success on an 8,000 meter mountain doesn't mean that it doesn't come to, with the pain of a background and a purpose. And so you've been mountaineering for decades. I mean, longer than I've been alive almost. And what started you on your journey of climbing some of those big boy mountains, the 8,000ers? Great question. I suppose I unconsciously took off on this apprenticeship route because I didn't know, first of all, I was on it. I, I was just, I was on this journey and, you know, it happened in Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales. And I didn't have money, as I said, but I was, I, you know, I, 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 I had good people around me that were able to give me a few quid and allowed me to un unlock flights. And it got me away to France and into Switzerland and I went over to Chamonix and Mont Blanc and into, into Europe. And I, I couldn't afford to sleep in any big fancy hotels. And I would have my little, a little tent with me and I would kind of camp at the bottom of the mountains and I would try to steal an hour from the guide here and an hour from the guide there. And, you know, the guides could see that, they could see my commitment to, to my mountains and my training and my apprenticeship. They would, you know, nearly whenever the big wealthy climber would come off the ice climb and maybe pack their bag and depart, the guide then would give me a half an hour on the climb and he would give me, he'd teach me how to use the ice tools and how to ice climb and how to use crampons and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, so that was part of the journey. And and then, you know, we don't ever realize how some individuals that come into your life can leave everlasting effects. And Dawson Stelfox was the first Irishman to climb Mount Everest. And I was a young boy, I was a young budding, you know, a mountaineer. And he was doing a tour of Ireland and stopping off in some of the, the, the parish halls and some of the community centres and some of the large universities. And I got to listen to his talk and he was present, he presented the story of Mount Everest and the trials, the tribulations and the battle that himself and the Irish team, because it was an all Irish team that they had to endure. And I was the kid at the back pretending not to be listening trying to be cool and all the rest but I was completely floored by it I could I was I was hanging on every single word that was coming out of his mouth and so much so that I stayed back afterwards when everybody left I just was kind of nervously and awkwardly hanging around the back of the room and I waited till everybody left and he was intuitive enough to see what I was doing and I would come up and I was just like mumbling my words and I was saying that this was just amazing and my god and he asked me what I was doing and I told him what I was doing I was saying I was climbing here and I was doing this and I was, you know, I was kind of trying to trying to find my way. And he, he had a booklet at the time and all the photographs of the climb were in it and the descriptions of the climb. And he, he signed it for me and I didn't look at it till I went home. And rather than sign it, Dawson Stelfox, he just he, he put a thing in the inside. And he says, Jason, have the courage to always follow your dreams in life. And I have that I have that I have that booklet framed 
in my home where I am now beside my certificate for Everest because he lit a fire inside me that day. I'm not saying that he, he lit the Everest fire, but he lit a fire. And it's just incredible how influential people in your parish, in your community, in your, in your culture, in your mountaineering world, in schools, in football, in Cubs and Scouts, or in any walk of life, how they can, you don't, you can never believe the, the impression or the magnitude your words can have on, on an individual. And, you know, likewise, like tonight, I'd like to think maybe there's somebody listening to this and like ins inspiration or ins inspire people. It's a word that doesn't sit well with me, you know, but I'd like to think somebody gets empowered by me, by my journey, by my apple from the, from the gutter to the summit of life. And um, so that's, that's kind of how it all started. And then I went from there to, I went from there to, to, more European mountains. And then I got my first opportunity to go to Nepal as a young boy. And I went out there and I, I couldn't, I couldn't afford a permit. I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford a, a climbing permit to climb in. Spent a lot of time on the, uh, in the Kumbu and I started to hone my craft and skill on some of the smaller slopes where I could beg dealers or beg borrowers steal some time on. Um, and I was learning my craft from other very experienced mountaineers and, you know, asking questions from all these phenomenal athletes, phenomenal, you know, mountaineers and expedition leaders that had gone, uh, you know, had gone before us and our forebears that had laid the paths to success and showed us how to do it. And I was just listening and learning and applying all I could. and. Um, so yeah, that's that brought me right up to, I suppose, taking on my first proper big climb, which was, I suppose, Island Peak would have been my first one. You know, that would have been my 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 first climb. I couldn't afford to do it commercially. I went in there and done it uh, you know, in a very bespoke manner. And I just took off from there and I've spent a life today as a, on an apprenticeship. I'm 51 years of age and very strong and very athletic and and I'm, I'm probably punching above my weight. And uh, I've been on a, I don't know, 40 year apprenticeship and I'm still learning. And uh, I still look back and I have to pinch myself, to be honest with you. I look back and think, Christ, how did this all happen? You know, how did this young kid from Donegal, from the middle of nowhere, you know, be successful in all these 8,000 meter mountains and some of the greatest climbs in the world? I love how you talk about your mountaineering journey as your apprenticeship, because you're always learning, you're always getting better. And I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, because mountaineering, essentially, it is a craft. Yeah, look, uh, a purist climber or a purist mountaineer is somebody that applies the skill and craft, takes the time applies the detail and attention that's required to be safe, knowledgeable, um, be able to climb self-sufficiently with purpose and with commitment. And for me, I didn't really know that I was on that trajectory or that journey, but today in reflection, 
I'm delighted that I was, and I'm delighted that's the route I've taken. Um, I do get annoyed and frustrated today in this modern world that we live in, that these express routes are now being opened for people with money to summit um, with very little experience and commitment to the mountain and commitment to the community that we climb within. Um, because mountaineering is more than the mountain. Mountaineering is more than it's about it's about you know the environment, it's about the culture, it's about the people, it's about caring for the community, it's about leaving more behind than we take away. I think that's really important to me. We we have to leave more behind than we take away. And I just think that some of these express situations are you know they, they you know they're 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 a grab and go you know they're they, they get in they grab and they go again and they don't leave anything behind and uh, i think it's a reckless it's a reckless approach to mountaineering um and it's not sustainable um i think it's not sustainable at all so i think for me uh, a purest approach is to be able to be part of a, a strong team a committed team to be part of the route to be putting in the route to be carrying in the gear um you know i support the fact that we do need porters and we should have sherpas it's an economy and it's a it's they have got to earn a, a living from it and and that's absolutely correct and it's the way it has always been because some of the big expeditions we need the manpower or the human power to bring in the equipment and they need rewarded um and they can live a life um, but we should be part of an expedition and not a passenger in an expedition. And that's the difference today. There's too many passengers and there's not enough people with purpose. I think that's the best way of saying it. And personally, I, I agree with you. And I know that a lot of the mountaineering community does agree with that purist approach. When you first attempted Mount Everest, what what were your thoughts? Well, just before we move on, something just jumped into my oh. mind. It's about it's about being able to look in the mirror, and that's something that means a lot to me and and to my community of mountaineers and to the people that respect me and I respect them as functioning purist climbers. That we can look in the mirror and look in the white of the eye and feel and know that we were part of the success of that expedition and we played a major part and we took it on properly and delivered it and i think that's really important and i feel i feel i feel that's a really important part of my um you know as part of my ethics system that i must be able to look at myself and know that i played a major part in the success of that expedition um what was everest like uh oh wow oh, well i can tell you one thing i never imagined it to be the size that it was and i have often heard that that line being spoken about i have i can tell you one thing when i seen everest for the very first time i had to sit down and I'm not exaggerating. I could not comprehend the size of this mountain. I the Himalayas are beyond the rationale of an ordinary person's mind because I've tried. I've sat in classrooms. I have tried in 
business forums to try to explain with the best will in the world, with video, with, uh, with photographs, even with my, my verbal uh, communication skills. And I can never do it justice. I can never, I can never let anybody see through my imagery or words what, it, what an 8,000 meter mountain looks like. It is the jack of the beanstalk that goes up and up and up and disappears into those clouds. And um, it's beautiful, it's class. And to see not only one, but to see to see them all uh, crowned around each other in the kombu is is magnificent. Uh, Lord sea and ah, oh, it's just it's just it's magical. It's a magical space. So then it was uh, it was Jesus Christ. How am I going to climb this? Thing? You know, how am I going to climb this thing? You know, it's like wow. You know, and then from there we just. You know, I just got on with it, just one step in front of the other, and away I went. But I spent about eight years out there, Pauline. Uh, I spent eight years there practicing and training and going to base camp and the surrounding mountains and going up to camp one through the icefall. And 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 uh, I spent a lot of time trying to hone the skill and the craft at altitude because there's one thing learning a skill and the craft at sea level, you know, in Scotland or in Chamonix or in Switzerland. Um, but there's another skill having to act, uh, act and perform um, in her sport at altitude and even at like 6,000 meters just above base camp, you know, you're completely exhausted. You're, you know, your, your energy levels are on the floor and you're trying to be safe and, and, and confident as a mountaineer. So that was a whole learning, starting to learn how to move at altitude. So I spent eight years, um, you know, between Murray Peak, Island Peak, um, you know, taking on those, those lower slopes. Um, and one thing that really disturbed me was the, it was at a time that I think everything was exploding, um, you know, that um, a lot of money was coming into mountaineering and people were starting to buy the, uh, the helicopter rides and, and a lot of these very wealthy um, people that had no mountaineering experience, but a wealth to come in and, and buy their way into, into a summit or buy their way onto a summit or buy their way onto an expedition. They were coming in, but they had no they had no care or consideration for the garbage, for the kombu down below it, for the villages that were lower down, that the waters were running through the kombu and down into these villages, which was carrying uh, pollution and damaging their, the ecosystem and damaging the health of the of the locals. Um, you know, they were leaving, you know, uh, oxygen bottles behind, the ropes weren't cut down, being cut down again, and there was, there was a lot of trash starting to to emerge at base camp, and and it you know back then it wasn't being protected at all, and and numbers were swelling. You know the permits were starting to explode because there was a newfound wealth. There was a brand newfound wealth in Nepal, um, you know, and and there was you know there was certain companies that were perfectly poised and ready for for that immersion of business, and and uh, you know so the the perfect storm happened. You know the wealth was there. People wanted to buy a summit, and and then there was there was the necessity, and there was the capability by the Napoli by some Napolese companies to ramp up, and to be able to facilitate. So for me, I I, I kind of visualize it as like a bastardization of the mountain, and it was it wasn't the world I grew up on. It wasn't it it certainly didn't reflect the mountaineering culture that I had come from, and it didn't represent the my ethics as a mountaineer and my purest approach and. I decided that if I was going to climb Everest, because I didn't at that stage know if I had the ability physically, mentally or, or financially to do it. Uh, but I decided then that I wasn't going to climb it through the North, 
through the through the sorry through the uh and uh, when the time came and I could put the finances together, I chose to go through Tibet and through China. And I, I got my permit through the uh, civil aviation authorities in China and uh, traveled through Tibet and, and into the and into the Rumbok Glacier and on up into the headwall in, in the north side and uh, to Gone Everest on the north face. When what was hardest for you, going up or coming down? Oh, without a doubt, going up. Um, without a doubt, going up. Um, I've heard different people's interpretations of how they felt on the mountain. Some felt lethargic, tired, and difficult coming down. And But I felt, for me personally, dealing with altitude was a bugger, you know. I think my hardest part on Everest was, uh, was at 7,700 meters in camp two above the head wall, just at the top of the head wall. Uh, I had come out of uh, advanced base camp, um, which we classified as camp one and headed up to above the head wall and, and, and perished up there. And I, I remember putting in two very, very difficult days there. Um, I was climbing, you know, as part of a very, very, very small team. Uh, you know, there was a small community of people over there. There wasn't, you know, we see reports of three or 4,000 people attempting Everest on the south side. I think there was 50 people in total on the north side whenever I was there. Um, you know, and like 50 people are lost completely on a big mountain, like an 8,000 meter mountain like Everest. So I found, I found that very difficult. I found, I found, I found the climb itself with altitude uh, difficult. I didn't find it technically overwhelming. I suppose I was pretty, I was a pretty good athlete and I had a very, very good fitness level. Um, I had a very good skill set on the mountain and I felt confident and capable of putting in the route and working with the teams there and, and establishing camps. Um, but I just found altitude and the way up very, very difficult. Uh, but that's that's normal. It's it's totally normal. Um, I got sick. Um, I got sick at uh, one of the camps and I thought my expedition was finished. I had to come back down again, uh, back to advanced base camp. And even at, at base camps, advanced base camp, I stayed, I stayed one night there. And, and I didn't have any doctor or anything. And I, I was vomiting and I didn't feel that well. And I probably had major symptoms of cerebral edema and um, which was my brain swelling. Um, and then I, I had to drop back to the true base camp at the very bottom. Um, and, and then I spent about two weeks back there and, and got myself well again. And at the lower altitude, you can your body gets warmer and, and uh, with a little bit more oxygen, your body can can repair, um, you know, the, the repair process uh, at altitude is extremely slow and lethargic because, you know, we're here in, in, at sea level and, and our bodies are primed to be at this level. And, you know, we've got so much energy and healing ability up there. Everything is so slow. So it took me about two months to get well again. Sorry, two weeks to get well again. And then I went back up and again, that was me on my push then for the summit. So I was there for, I think I was there for just over two months in total. Um, Two months on the on the on the north face, um, and then I summited on the nineteenth of May, two thousand and thirteen. I picked up an ear infection near the top. Um, I remember I had a very very sore ear, and I started myself on on uh, antibiotics. I didn't know if I should take the antibiotics. I was mixing it with Diamox. I was on some Diamox, 
half a tab in the morning, half a tab in the evening, because uh, I got a little bit nervous with the hypoxic um, situation earlier on. Um, it was the year that the Chinese team were going to push for the summit first to try to beat the Nepalese team up from the south side. Uh, they left on the they left on the night of the 18th of May, and uh, the weather conditions was brutal. I remember sitting at high camp um, in the death zone. Um, and there must have been no exaggeration over 80 kilometer a mile, 80 kilometer an hour winds. My tent was being torn to shreds. I remember sitting inside and I had to hold the, the door because the zip had busted. Uh, and I was thinking about those poor men that had left to go to the summit. And uh, whenever I peeked my head out uh, in the early hours of the 19th uh, to go from, to, I had to have a go myself. Uh, I remember I could hear the, I could hear them coming down past my tent uh, at night, uh, early hours, but it was still dark. Uh, and I know they were broken. Uh, I know that they were, uh, a lot of them had lost, um, or certainly it were looked like they were going to lose digits because they had lost their gloves and they, they had uh, definitely got major, major frostbite on their fingers. Um, a few of them were snow blinded and were being helped down the mountain. So um, they're, 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 their push for success to be the first on the mountain, to be the first on the summit that year, because there's this battle that goes on every year between the Chinese and the Napolis to see who can get up first. Um, but sadly, it, uh, it came at a cost for them. So, and on that night, we we uh, we pushed. Uh, there was four or five climbers, and uh, we lost a climber. Namgyal uh, died. He was a Sherpa. Uh, we had just left high camp, uh, pushed up, and. Uh, Reports had come in that uh, Namgil had uh, had perished on the mountain, and it was a pretty pretty difficult time because I suppose we as high altitude mountaineers come from a very small community of of climbers, and we all know each other. We all, while we don't know each other personally, we all know who each other is, and we all have a massive respect for each other. And to hear one of your own brothers has fallen um, and had died uh, was was a, a painful experience. Um, but it's the, I suppose it's the crucifix that we carry as mountaineers. It's it's what we know that we face on a regular basis. Getting there to the summit, then I summited at seven a.m. in the morning. Um, I was on my own at seven a.m. There was nobody else on the summit. I stood there on my own, and um, about. It was a 24-hour rotation from Camp 4 to the summit, and back to Camp 4 for me, uh, well into the first, uh, well into the first 16 hours. Uh, it was really, really cold, and um, you know we've got to we've got to take on uh, the north side has got a little bit more uh, technical uh, challenges uh, with the first step, second step, mushroom rock. Um, these are like very vertical. Uh, massive rock structures that we've got to get over at 8,000 meters and it puts massive pressure on the body um, to deliver to deliver uh, a performance at that altitude so um, I was able to get up over those and, and push on and I got there at 7am and I, I never forget one of the times I was really nervous and it goes back to my childhood I remember I was so nervous because I was on my own that I asked for my mother to come with me and to keep me safe. And 
My two hands were frozen cold because of the cold. It was minus 18 degrees Celsius up there. And uh, uh, I'll never forget, my, my two hands were freezing cold and my left hand went roasting warm. Um, and I feel as if my mum reached for my hand and guided me to the summit. And when I, when I got there instantly, my, my hand went cold again. And, and I felt that, you know, she was part of that final part for me. Whether, whether I, you know, I was, whether I was feeling it or, or needed to feel it, it, it felt very real for me. And uh, the sense was you're there now, Jason, you'll make your own way back down again. So the feeling that I experienced on the summit of Mount Everest was phenomenal. I mean, first of all, it's this very tiny space for me. Um, it was only four square meters. It was a very, very small space. Um, I had very, very deep rooted emotions that were flowing through my body. Um, I suppose the first emotion was just you know, the pride of, of getting there, you know, the pride of my parents, the pride in my community, my my people, the pride in the people that encouraged me and pushed me and supported me financially and uh, mentally and physically to get me there. You know, it was I was carrying that on my sleeve for everybody. Um, and that meant a lot to me. The value system that my parents and my grandparents had put into me with manners and respect and empathy and courtesy. I was holding that that close to my chest and my heart. You know, those ethics uh, were very important to me as a human being. Um, I had another very weird feeling um, because I was there on my own. Um, I have got great friends at home that, you know, we meet on a regular basis for a few beers and, and they, you know, they, they keep me very much grounded uh, and they don't let me get my head above my ass. And uh, these guys... <laughs> Uh, these guys, uh, they needed confirmation that I made it. And I, I this, who's going to take my photograph moment up there? So um, I was kind of panicking about like doing a selfie and on the summit of Mount Everest, and they're not going to believe that I got here. And so anyway, it, it was Red Nose Day in 2013, May, May 19th, 2013. And, and the British team were coming up from the south side and they were doing uh, a live um, Red Nose Day uh, broadcast on BBC just below the summit and if you ever go and google that and look at it you're going to see Jason Black yours truly sitting on the summit on my own and on that day um, the Sherpa that came to the summit uh, whose name just escapes me here and now uh, he set the world record that day for the the most amount of times um, uh, an individual had got to the summit of the world I think he had got there 19 times that day and uh, I congratulated him and he took my photograph. Uh, the other very, very, very uh, strong emotion that I had on the summit, and it's something that probably really stayed with me to this day more than ever, uh, more than the view, more than the feeling was. I was... I. I stood on the summit of my life, Pauline. I wasn't standing on the summit of Mount Everest. I had silenced society. I had overcome the bully. I had pushed through the battles and the challenges of life. And I had survived the rope. I had survived, I had survived society's box that they tried to fit me into. I had survived the bully that beat the living delights out of me and destroyed me as a human being. I'd survived the the headmaster that told me that I would never amount to anything. And uh, 
the sense of pride that I felt for the first time in me personally was immense. I had never felt that. I was never proud of Jason Black. They had beaten that out of me. Um, but then all of a sudden, the pride of who I was, what I was, and what I stood first, I would flow into my body. And I walked away. I walked away with the greatest gift uh, on the summit of Mount Everest, which was in reflection, the summit of my life. Everybody has a different Everest story and yours is just so unique and especially like how you felt when you were at the summit, but also being one of not very many people not having to share the mountain. Besides Mount Everest, you have also done K2 as well, correct? Yeah, I, 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 I attempted K2 twice. Um, I, I, I tried it in 2015, you know, it's the, you know, K2 is K2, K2 is the Mountaineer's Mountain, it's, it's the one we all want, you know, we all talk about Everest and we all talk about all these other climbs, but uh, deep down in our fabric, when you peel the skin back in the onion, um, it's K2 we're after, you know, that's the big boy, and um, yeah, look, I, I never imagined K2 in my, in my journey, um, when I walked off Everest and 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 I had wouldn't say closed the door on that, but it, when I had it done, um, you know, I didn't. It's not a tick boxing exercise for me, but um, you know, K two came into my radar and conversations started happening, and and um, you know, again, we're a small close knit community of high performance, high altitude mountaineers, and you know, I've been following certain climbers and I've been seeing what they were doing and. And um, and I thought, wow, I wonder could I? I wonder can I? And I wonder will I be let? <laughs> because I think, like every good climber, there's a family behind the scenes, and I've I'm married to a beautiful wife, and I've got four gorgeous children, and I come from a very caring community that loves me and cares for me and respects me as a as an athlete, and. Uh, and and K two has has this incredible and uh, vicious uh, savage um, notoriety about it. It's called the Savage Mountain, and you know back in its heyday, I suppose one and three died on K two. Uh, we're seeing it today a little bit more commercialized, which is very sad. Uh, but um, prior to that, the purest guys were in there. And we were taking it on the pure way. I tried it in 2015. Uh, I wasn't successful. I got hit with an avalanche at Camp 2, wiped out my gear, um, ripped my camp to bits, survived, lost all my equipment, stove, gas, oxygen, tents, um, climbing harness, crampons, ice axes, helmet, everything was gone. I was literally left standing in while well, I was standing in the clothes that I was that I was wearing and I was so lucky I mean this thing just missed me right place at the right time um and uh yeah sadly there was quite a bit of uh, damage that year um one of the high altitude Pakistani porters was killed and a couple of the couple of the team were injured and had to be um we had to go and rescue them take them down um so yeah k2 Never materialized in 2015. Um, 
only one Irish man had ever attempted it before, Jared McDonald, um, who was who was killed um, in 2008 uh, in that very famous and sad, um, you know, the biggest tragedy ever to happen in K2 2008. He was part of the Norwegian team. Um, you know, it's well documented that, that team chose to walk past another team that could hit with a, a piece of ice that come off the Serac and they were hanging upside down. And uh, that team chose to walk past, but Jared McDonald, the Irish Mountaineer, chose not to walk past and uh, he stayed and cut them down and they were very badly injured and tried to save them. And uh, sadly, whenever people were looking up from high camp, uh, another piece of the Serac collapsed and uh, took Jared and the other climbers to their, to their peril. So, Jared McDonald uh, perished in 2018. And uh, when I went in there in 2015, his, his parents and his brother, uh, JJ and uh, uh, Damien, his brother Law, contacted me in Islamabad. And when the news had broken internationally that another Irish climber was attempting it um, in Islamabad, they made contact with me in, in, the, in a hotel in a compound where we were being kept. And uh, I took the phone call and uh, I mean, I had followed this family. I'd watched the, the summit uh, film on Netflix and I was in awe of, of this mountaineer. And I unconsciously was probably following his, his same footsteps with Denali and, and the, same, the same apprenticeship route that he had taken. I seemed to be on the same trajectory. So they asked me, would I keep an eye out for him in 2015? I said I would. And, um, and anyway, look, um, Jared, Jared never come home in 2008 and the journey was never completed for an Irishman. So I got an opportunity. I left uh, in 2015 and they say you should never look back. And I looked back at Concordia Corner and I suppose that day I sowed the seed that maybe I'll get a chance to go back. And for a couple of years after that, I walked with a stone in my shoe. Um, where I felt that it was unfinished business and there was something that I left behind and that I had to get back. So I visited the McDonald family down in Limerick. Um, they invited myself and Sharon, my wife, down for dinner um, or some uh, afternoon lunch. And um, we went down and we spent some time laughing and crying and they wanted to know about my expedition. And, and they cried about the loss of their loved one that never came home. And, and, um, it really touched me and uh, Jerry's mommy, Gertie, uh, asked me quietly to come outside and which I did. And they lived in a small farm in, in West Limerick. And she said, Jason, you're going to go back. I just know you are. And I says, Gertie, I'm going to go back. And she says, if you're going to go back, I want you to climb with Jerry's equipment. I want you to climb with Jerry's ice axe. And I want you to climb with Jerry's Dunbar. And I want you to wear some of his gear. I want you to bring a bit of Jer back to the mountain. I want you to finish what he set out to do. And um, it was a big responsibility for me, I suppose. I never, I didn't go looking for this. So in 2018, I went back in again and I brought a plaque back from the people of Ireland. I got one professionally made because in base camp, uh, there's an area there that's dedicated to the fallen and it's his name was on a, was on a tin plate. And, and, and just, you know, punched out with a nail and, and, and just sitting and 
you know, in the, in just off to the left at base camp. And I just thought for all his actions that day, his heroic actions that day, that surely, you know, his actions was worth more than a dinner plate with his name punched into it with a nail. So I got a, a proper plaque made from the pe people of Ireland and I got a, a poem written, uh, written for Jer uh, by an Irish poet. And it's today now in base camp and it, it marks his heroic actions that, that day in 2008. And uh, so I went in and 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 uh, pushed on K2 and spent two and a half months in there to go up, to go up uh, two cows, one buffalo, 14 goats and probably about 60 hens. We killed them live. There was a small team of six. A uh, very, very small, very, very small team in there. There was very little climbers in there that year. Uh, this is long before it became uh, the commercial machine that we know of it today, or the, sadly that it's growing into today. And uh, we put in the full route the whole way. I worked with the Sherpa team. The team did. We put in different sections. We carried gear. We established the route. Uh, we did it on the Abruzzi Spur. And uh, the weather in 2008 was... Sorry, the weather in 2015 was very warm and made the mountains supple and dangerous. And I think that's why there was a lot of avalanches. And in 2018, when I went back in again, the mountain was colder and, and uh, it was safer and there was better purchase on the mountain. So I think the conditions lent themselves well that year for us. Um, I found it an extremely, extremely hard climb. K2 is is a bugger of a climb it's you know it starts steep and finishes steep there's very little room for 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 failure there's very little room for slippage you know um it's a very committed space because if anything goes above you you're below it and, and it's coming your direction and it's very hard to escape anything loose that's moving on the mountain and yeah there's a couple of climbers that we lost that year in 2008 um so yeah look Hard place to survive. K2 doesn't have the luxuries of, I suppose, a modern base camp. You know, it doesn't have the luxuries of all these, you know, gadgets of broadband. And certainly we didn't have anyway. And uh, the isolation from from uh, Scardu is, you know, it's eight or nine days away from civilization. You know, you're very, very high in the in the glacier. And, and it's a very, 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 very difficult, uh, the Balterio Glacier. And, uh it's a very very difficult place to 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 coexist you know as a team and you're waiting for the weather windows to work for you um so about two and a half months i was there and i was successful uh got to the summit um never forget that last night it was brutally hard we had a chinese uh team that decided to come behind us that we had made we had made a plan in base camp that we were going to be the only team to move that night. And uh, there was a Chinese team that didn't have Sherpas and were using uh, two high altitude porters. Uh, Ali uh, was one, sadly Ali died with John, John Sorley there um, in the last winter season. Um, Ali and another high altitude porter came with the Chinese um, they got it wrong when the Chinese girls ran out of oxygen just below the shoulder. Um, myself and Alan Fubar, the Sherpa, um, myself and himself had to save her life. Uh, we had to go and get oxygen that we had on the shoulder uh, that we had put in place, bring it back down again and put it on her and, uh, and get her off the mountain. 
um, her Kinemon partner also became hypoxic and with the lack of oxygen uh, slipped and fell uh, to his death um, on the bottleneck. Uh, he fell uh, and, and perished. And um, yeah, the conditions was pretty okay that year. We 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 uh, we topped out at the, topped out at six o'clock in the morning um, in two thousand eight, and uh, I dedicated the claim to my four children. Um, to never stop believing in life. To never stop achieving and having dreams and aspirations and goals. To uh, to remove the obstacles and find solutions and. I suppose that's the message that I carry to everybody. Um, it doesn't have to be K2, it doesn't have to be Everest, but you should have a dream, a goal, an aspiration to be incredible. It's a one life uh, journey that we're on. And if it's one life and we only drink from this cup once, then we should drink from it wisely and, and well. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but you do a lot of community work. Jason, uh, you work with youth and you also work with the Red Cross. Can you tell yeah. us more about your work? Yeah, look, I think it, that was born from, from, I suppose, the apprenticeship again. Um, again, because I avoid commercial routes as best I can, there's the odd time I have to commit to them because that's the nature of the route. But in most cases, I tend to be in very remote environments. And that brings me to villages that are not on the on the gravy train or they aren't on on the you know the 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 wealthy routes and and these villages are struggling to survive and uh, with little education and and uh, and yet they accepted me as a climber into their homes and give me uh, a bed sleeping and give me the last grain of rice in their larder and and and, and knowing that it was that that it was it was going to make life difficult for them. And that left such a lasting impression on me that these people had nothing and were prepared to give me everything. And I had everything at home and I was satisfied with nothing. You know, that's that's how the modern, that's how I envisaged the modern world. They, they were in a very broken uh, or a very uh, impoverished environment and they had nothing, but they were happy. And, and, and I look at the modern society that have everything and, and they're unhappy. And and I I just I decided that if I could make a difference in their lives, that I would. And I know that I can't fix the world. I know that one person, you know, hasn't the ability to solve all the world's problems. But if I choose to sit back, then nothing's going to get done. And like like-minded mountaineers and outdoor enthusiasts that I share my life with, we are all cut from the same cloth, purest climbers, purest mountaineers, purest outdoor professionals, and enjoy that enjoy the outdoor seen, look after nature, uh, look after the communities that we have been blessed to go into and share. And so I decided that I, I was going to make a difference. And I knew that throwing money at a problem wasn't going to fix it. So I needed to start with education. So I wanted to get involved in construction of schools. And we did that in Kilimanjaro. And I'm actually, I'm actually heading out there now uh, in the next uh, four days. And um, we've been involved in building the school in Tanzania. Uh, we've been able to support 150 students in that school. We have been paying for two teachers in that school, um, their salary every year. And I've generated 4,000 US dollars uh, from a fast that I, I fasted every Friday for the month of December. Um, 
and and I asked people to do to donate to to a GoFundMe page, and I raised four thousand euros or four thousand US dollars, and that's going to final finally finish one last classroom in that school. So that school will be completely completed this year, uh, and and we're up and running, and 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 it's making a difference. We're seeing, I'm seeing through educating young people how they are uh, in control of their own destiny instead of being a slave to a system, a slave to the impoverished environment that they find themselves in. And, you know, what we, we need to do is we need to balance the equality of the world. And, and you know, so it's not enough just to throw money and clothes at a problem. You know, you have got to get to the root source of it. And, you know, we'll never, we'll never ever fix the, the criminal aspect or the, or, or the corruption that exists in, in every community. But if we can fix and help and support small villages, through education, I think that's really important. Um, I we run programs as well in relation to clothing as well to try to get our porters, um, like other good. You know, I'm a guide today, and I, I have a very ethical mindset towards uh, improving standards within, you know, the mountaineering services that are provided in each of these communities that we travel in. So in Africa, for example, I'm going out now with new gear for, for the porters and and uh you know boots and and backpacks and, and 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 you know you want them to look professional you want them to feel professional you want them to feel that they are you know they they are the you know they are the professional mountain guide you know these people are these people are the guides in their own communities i mean we're only guests we're only just traveling through and uh, these are the indigenous locals and you know we need to respect them and we need to give them the 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 uh we need to give them the platform to, to excel. So um, again, my life with the Red Cross is important as well. You know, I get to go to and see, uh, you know, war struck countries, um, people that have been touched by the criminalization of the war in the world and the side effects and the damage they can leave behind. Um, and also been involved in, in um, you know, some environmental projects too as well, which I'm not overly uh, strong at. You know, it's not my real strength, but I suppose I try to play my part in, in that world as well. So, look, you know, I, I'm not fixing the world, but I'm playing my part. I'm trying to be a good human being. I'm trying to leave more behind that I take away from, from what nature give me and from what the communities have shared with me on my travels. And, uh, and that's it. That's, that's what I'm doing. Jason, um, you didn't really mention it very much, but you currently have um, an expedition company, and could you tell us a little bit about more, a little bit more about that? So I'm very shy at selling myself. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just, I suppose, it's a weakness on my behalf. Uh, I like to think my actions sell, sell a company story or a journey. So I have a small, small expedition company. Um, Jason Black Mountaineering, uh, my own namesake. Um, I apply a very purist approach to what we do. Um, I'm currently guiding on most of the big mountains around the world. Um, everything from small lowland tracks in Europe right through to the bigger tracks in the Himalayas and Pakistan. Um, the typical base camp experience that people want to learn um, spiritually more about themselves. Um, Murapik, Olympic, where it all happened, started for me. And I really, I, 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 this isn't a journey that I thought I would ever find myself on. This isn't something I set out to, 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 uh, 
to accomplish. Um, necessity forced me this direction. I needed a job. Um, I suppose I had spent most of my life uh, pursuing my own personal goals and aspirations as a mountaineer. And then I felt that I wanted to pass on the skill set that I've been given and the inspiration and the empowerment to try to show people how how they could uh, do the same. And it's not even about mountaineering. It's about applying the skill set to their life. It's about, you know, having the courage to train hard, to be committed to a space, be committed to a goal and have a dream and an aspiration. And when you fall, to accept that it's OK to fall, but it's not OK to stay down there, that to get back up again. And um, so that's what my explorations are about. That's what my my journey is about. And by the way, we're going to climb a mountain when we're there. <laughs> so. Uh, it's a lot of it's about understanding the culture of the communities we go to, um, the music, the food, the schooling, the education, you know, the religion of the of the communities. You know, I spent a lot of time on the expedition, you know, sharing with my clients and members, um, you know, the culture and uh, and then we climb when we're there. So it's a very rounded, purist approach to expedition life. I think it sounds like a wonderful experience, Jason. And your website is jasonblack.ie, right? Anybody can get me personally. Um, I personally guide every single expedition. So I don't, I don't farm out my expeditions to the other teams. Uh, it's me that meets you at the airport. It's me that's going to guide you. It's me that's going to share a life of um, learning, um, you know, um, what, you know, when you sign up for the expedition, that's when it starts. It doesn't start the day we meet at the airport. You know, I put training plans together for people. I, you know, go through gear gear checks with people. I organize uh, training weekends, um, and and we find out where your where your um, where your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, I'm also an exercise physiologist, so I have a lab and I test all the people that go with me on. Um, so I do an exercise physiology test on everybody. So I test their lungs, I test their cardiac system, and I test their um, their their skeletal and metabolic system and uh, mechanical system to see how how good uh, see where they are physically and and see how I can make the improvements so that, so that when they go on expedition they can really embrace it and enjoy it for what it is. And how many expeditions do you have going on this year in 2023? Well, I've been, I'm just back from Aconcagua. I'm heading straight into Kilimanjaro, coming back into Kilimanjaro, heading into Nepal, Nepal for a month or two out there then, uh, back again. And then I've got European claims going on and then I'm back out into Pakistan and then uh, post-monsoon back into Nepal back into Africa again and right through to Aconcagua again. So probably this year I'm going to be running personally, I'm going to be running probably about between 10 and 15 expeditions, international expeditions. And then uh, I have a lot of homegrown, homegrown expeditions. I, I run Ireland's seven summits, which is to climb the highest seven, seven highest mountain ranges, not mountains, but the highest seven, seven highest mountain ranges in Ireland and to become an Irish uh, seven summit here. And the reason I do that is to create a platform for people to springboard off um, from Ireland to maybe something bigger. Jason, it's so amazing how just your philosophy, but also your journey, and then how you give back to the community. It's 
it's astonishing because not everybody does that. And I love that you give back. Uh, one more question because we're cutting it kind of close on time. Your, you mentioned this before we even started recording. We talked about your wife, Sharon, and your family and how much of a support they are for you. Yeah, I always said that the greatest interview is my partner, is my wife. I, I believe that they have the best interview. Like we get on here and we talk about, you know, our expedition life and, you know, it's filled with purpose because this is what we choose to do. I think what people choose to forget, or sorry, what people forget is that they don't choose to sit at home worrying and stressing and, you know, and it's a very selfish world that we live in as in mountaineers, I mean, we choose to go off and pursue what we want to do and please God with the skill set and with a life of, of, of training that we can successfully come home. Um, yes, we're at the hands of Mother Nature and we're at the hands of uh, the luck of the mountain um, and they, they have to just hold on tight. And, you know, there's this real sense of cutting the ambivalent cord when we head off on a big 8,000 metre mountain you know, that, that that maybe this is the last time. And, and and I think it's a very powerful thing for some, for your partner to be able to let you follow your dreams and goals in life. And, and um, you know, it's without doubt, Pauline, that Sharon is 50% the success of what I do because I can leave with a conscience that I can get on with what I need to do. And she trusts, Sharon trusts that I put, put so much time and effort and into my preparation. I don't go in foolhardy. I go in very, very committed physically, mentally, and emotionally to the expedition to be successful. Uh, but yet there's that question, what if? And 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 you know, that is the hardest part of an expedition. You know, you know, when not only when we go on expedition, but our family goes on expedition, our community goes on expedition, our loved ones go on expedition, my parents go on expedition. Because when I'm there and I'm committed, or we're there and we're committed our families are at home and they're as committed and they are completely reliant on, 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 on us, you know, on us. And um, I have so much respect and, and admiration for Sharon and for a lot of Sharons around the world and a lot of families around the world to allow us to do what we do. And uh, I applaud them because they have the best interview and they are the people that really and truly should be interviewed. Jason, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you sharing your story and your commitment to the mountains and your commitment to, the to your family and also the mountaineering world. And thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity and to everybody listening, uh, keep up the good work, keep pushing, um, keep dreaming, keep having goals, uh, live life to the full. It's only one, there's a one trick pony. We don't get a second chance at this. And be mindful that our greatest gift, and please hear me, our greatest gift as human beings is to make a difference in somebody else's life. Our greatest gift isn't going to be measured on the house that we live in, the car that we drive, the fancy clothes that we wear, the size of our bank balance. We're going to be measured on how kind and how good we are as human beings. So thank you for the opportunity to share.
Thank you so much, Jason, and hopefully we'll get to talk again. God bless. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode and my interview with Jason. It was so much fun to do. And honestly, we did about two hours, but only a portion of it was recorded because I haven't done any of the recording of the pre-interviews. Next week's episode, the only thing I know right now is that it's going to be a female. And I'm super excited about it, but you know how it is with scheduling issues and things like that. So hopefully it will be the person I want it to be. I might have to have somebody else just because this is the beginning of the hectic climbing season. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the All About Everest podcast. Please rate, subscribe, follow, and share. You can follow us on social media at All About Everest. And if you love what we do, you can even buy us a coffee. If you're interested in interviewing for us, please let us know or even sharing your Everest story. Cheers.